The power balance here lies with these platforms and, and creators really are just very replaceable cogs. There's, there's no one, like literally nobody, who is bigger than the platform. You know, PewDiePie can go away tomorrow and actually it won't matter to YouTube. Charlie D'Amelio could leave TikTok and it wouldn't be terminal for them. If you want to know my age, my social media habits will give me away. Here's a hint. I've seen a lot of TikTok videos. I've enjoyed a lot of TikTok videos. But I've watched them on Instagram and on Twitter. And during lockdown, my watching habits have drifted a little bit more over to YouTube, but not really a huge competitor against, say, BBC or Netflix. This kind of makes me a dinosaur in the online video world, an elder millennial. It kind of seems to me like a lot of effort to get invested into YouTube or TikTok in any kind of meaningful way. But these two platforms have larger audiences and a level of influence that cannot even be compared to any traditional media that we've seen before. At last check, YouTube has 2 billion monthly users. And now TikTok, with 800 million active users in only a few years of existence. According to a recent survey, if you ask a child in America or the UK what they want to be when they grow up, the most likely answer is a YouTuber. Today, we're digging into the world of online content creators made famous by YouTube and TikTok with a journalist who has followed their meteoric rises. Welcome to Storyteller, a podcast where we explore how and why we tell stories by speaking to creatives, academics, artists, scientists, anyone, you name it, from all over the world. I'm your host, Lisa Golden, a journalist and documentary filmmaker and now podcast host. This week, I spoke to Chris Stoker-Walker, a British journalist who covers digital culture. His work can be found in all the impressive places, uh, Wired, the BBC, New York Times, just to name a few. And he's also written a book about YouTubers and is now in the process of writing a book about TikTok. Put simply, if you want to understand the biggest video platform on earth or the fastest growing app of all time, Chris is your man. In our conversation, we discuss the rise and now kind of mainstreaming of YouTube as a platform. If we should be afraid of the rapid rise and influence of TikTok and the real cost that we're all paying for making and consuming huge amounts of content online for free. Before we start, I want to say thank you to the listeners who sent me feedback after the interview with Alexandra Dean on the Paris Hilton documentary and just generally everyone who got in touch with me about the podcast. Um, I just love hearing from you. So thank you to Alex, Molly, Ali, Lucy, Ashley, and Anita. As always, please do rate and review the podcast on Apple. It does make a huge difference in helping others find the podcast. And more importantly, to me personally, just share the episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. I've found that word of mouth is always how I found my favorite podcasts. This week, I also have the first of a handful of podcast cross-promotions. So this is a really interesting way podcasters can find each other and find other audiences that they think might be interested in their show. So I've picked a handful of shows that I think would be interested to the same sort of people who listen to Storyteller. And then they get to put a little bit of promo at the beginning of the show. So 
We're starting off this week with We Don't Talk About That with Lucas Land. Are you ever afraid to talk about something? Do you avoid certain topics, maybe with certain people? Like your racist Uncle Frank. Sorry, Frank, it's true. Do you want to learn how to have better conversations, increase compassion, and build bridges, not walls? We Don't Talk About That with Lucas Land is the podcast where we do talk about that with me, Lucas Land. Get it wherever fine podcasts can be found. Now, onto my interview with Chris Stoker Walker. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on Storyteller. Um, I'm trying to, I want to start the podcast by asking everyone who comes on if they consider themselves storytellers. So, do you consider yourself a storyteller? It's interesting. I guess I probably do, but I consider myself almost more of a translator. I think that's kind of what the job of a journalist is, to take other people's information, a lot of what they've done, um, sometimes their life's work, if you're talking about academic experts or something like that, and then to try and translate that from what is often very complicated, very specialist terms into something that the general public can understand. And sometimes we translate things a bit wrong. Sometimes we uh, maybe oversimplify. But through that, you tell stories. So, yeah, I think, you know, it, I, I always like to think of the sort of rigorous facts behind the reporting first and then the storytelling second, though I do love telling long form stories. Okay, great. Yeah. And I mean, I think in a sense, you are kind of, with the work that you're doing, an intergenerational translator, considering the um, size and impact of YouTube and the relative uh, representation of it in the mainstream. Oh, God, I'm literally about to say the mainstream media. That's terrible. I've been watching too much um, American <laughs> traditional traditional media. Um, do you kind of see that as your role? Is that sort of translating of these worlds? Yeah, I am. I am the bridge between being too old and being too young. So at thirty-one, I am exactly in the middle of that. I'm kind of very rapidly aging out of being able to talk about digital culture and the internet in any sort of meaningful way. But I, while I'm still able to, I will act as that bridge for the olds to understand what on earth that that their kids and their grandkids are are getting into. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, so to bring it over to YouTube, I find it really like incredible the 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 popularity and influence that, that these creators have, at, even as a more matured medium, um, that, you know, most kids will tell their parents that they want to be YouTubers when they grow up, when they, and they're the people who have probably the most media influence on their kids' lives. So I thought maybe if you could give us a little overview of, um, since I want to sort of focus on storytelling, I think we are by default going to focus more on the creators as much as I'd love to talk about. Um, and I think, you know, um, polarization on the platform just comes up naturally. But from the, if you were a creator on YouTube, what has the arc of that production been from um, when it first launched to now? Like how has the platform changed? So the really broad brush analysis of that is, easily understandable in separating the history of YouTube into two phases. So there was 
the phase when uh, the logo at the top of the page used to have underneath it a motto that said broadcast yourself and then there was the phase after that when it became much more professionalized now that's an oversimplification but essentially you know 2005 when the platform started the people who were on it were nerds you know there's there's no other way to describe them they were people who were maybe not um the most again to use a horrible phrase mainstream they were they were maybe the theater kids or they were the weird kids at school who had an interest in technology and culture and entertainment and they were playing around with you know microphones like we've got here and 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 cameras and, and things like that and they found an outlet for that you know it, it allowed them to kind of connect with other people all around the world with this weird interest that they shared and that was kind of revolutionary but then capitalism ruins everything essentially um i feel like i said that at least twice a day <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 the one thing that i i tend to always say when i'm talking about youtube and just life um but you know couple of years or three years into the platform you start to get brands realizing well actually this is a kind of juggernaut that we need to follow and it's hugely popular and is gaining an audience at, at a rate that we can't keep up with so they, they sort of saw the writing on the wall they, they saw you know the advent of our kind of streaming video on demand economy and, and the fact that we watch you know netflix as readily as we will sit down and watch some scheduled tv and advertisers started wanting a piece of the pie so they they threw in money to support creators or they often just gave them you know cars to drive around in to promote you know, vehicles. I think Ford did an example of that in sort of 2007, 2008. Uh, and then you get this kind of um, split between um, the hobbyist YouTubers and the professional YouTubers. And you know, that gulf, that gap between the two is initially very, very narrow. Um, in sort of early 2000s, you have some huge runaway successes. Um, yeah, I, I have in my book an example of a, a Ukrainian-American called Olga Karabayeva who um, posted on the site as Olga K, uh, who ended up becoming essentially this industrialized version of YouTube. She was almost like a robot posting sort of 25 videos a week, which is unsustainable by anyone's imagination. Um and then you get the the advent of kind of brands, people as brands, and and more professionalization on YouTube, and and so now people aren't necessarily telling stories. They are well, they no, actually, sorry, I should correct myself because every time that I say that people aren't telling stories, and I I oversimplify this stuff, um, Casey Neistat gets very angry at me. But for most people on YouTube now. It is no longer a hobby that they enjoy. It is a job. And they are essentially doing sort of the equivalent of, you know, McDonald's rather than, you know, um, brilliant Cordon Bleu food. So we have people making things for this platform in the hope of attracting huge amounts of eyeballs and then hopefully advertising dollars. But here's the rub, and kind of the issue that I'm always battling with when it comes to almost all social media platforms. 
when you're posting your thoughts, your videos, your photos, your experiences, but you're not big enough to be making money from advertisers or sponsors, you're kind of working for a multi-million dollar company for free. And if you are trying to make money off of it, become an influencer, become a creator who can sustain their livelihood online, the pathway of working your way up to a big enough audience isn't guaranteed. Okay, so maybe I shouldn't talk about Casey Neistat if he gets into fights with you, but I find him, he, he was a really... He, I would say, is probably the only YouTuber that I got really into watching his daily vlogs. And so, where would you place him in that in that um, in that evolution? Because I think, obviously, he sort of, I would say, professionalized the daily vlog, but also sort of set an impossible standard. Because I can't imagine that most people can have productions at that level at a day on a daily basis and of course he's based in New York and he has previous um experience in production but I kind of did watch him with sort of a bit of a sick fascination as a as a as a documentary filmmaker myself like how on earth is this guy doing this and still maintaining a life but then obviously like raised yeah, well, he's just, this quality he's just standard a mad up. genius like he's, he's amazing and he's, he's really lovely actually it's the the little argument that we got into was um him wanting to keep that kind of independent creative soul on youtube and and me saying that i think more people go into it now for the money than they do to create art so i mean you know casey is hugely influential in the history of youtube because he turned it from essentially an online repository for the kinds of stuff that you would just keep at the back of your drawer on a vcr you know like christmas videos that you would record on your home Mm -hmm. camcorders and things like that he turned it from that into something that is as good if not better than you know hollywood movies and 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 the best tv shows like the stuff that he produces is Mm -hmm. beautiful and it's amazingly um laid out and, and and the narrative is superb and but yeah you're right he he kind of set this goal of quality and quantity and what's happened is that some people can do that for a little bit and then they burn out and you know he's been upfront about the fact that his daily vlogging Mm. was not sustainable um and then what simultaneously happened is that there's been this rise of technology that has enabled uh people to kind of develop uh to to develop kind of skills that you wouldn't ordinarily expect okay so for the for the creators i think also when 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 we consider just the size of this platform and again like why why creators would come onto this platform and do this incredibly huge amount of work especially if you're doing daily daily content um i guess is it a little bit like the new modern version of being famous, I guess, because it's just that there's millions of people and everyone's trying and you might get a lucky break. And if you do get a lucky break, you have access to these millions or, you know, I, I, I think I just realizing that they take 45% of your advertising revenue kind of like blew my mind. I, to be fair, I don't really know what the rates are normally like in like a Hollywood or something like that, but it does seem like an incredibly high demand for a very risky algorithm and a huge cut that gets taken away from you. So what, what's the sell on YouTube? The sell is, yeah, the sell <laughs> is that you have 2 billion 
monthly active users worldwide who can potentially view your content so i mean that's why it's so popular it's because it's essentially the only um horse in the race at the minute but the the kind of the challenge with that is as you say you are building your popularity on someone else's platform and and they can change the rules of what they decide is good and what is bad at a whim which is why you start to see um on all platforms whether it's youtube or instagram or tiktok or or anything else um anybody that comes to any kind of modicum of fame deciding to uh branch out a lot they 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 don't just have a youtube channel anymore they have an instagram profile they're on tiktok as well and they will probably be doing something like a patreon or an only fans in order to make sure that they have that diversity of income streams that is going to be uh important for them because this is the world in which we live like it's you know it is interesting because i don't know if there is a a kind of pre-internet parallel um i suppose it would be almost like if you were a hollywood star in the 1980s and you negotiated a deal with studios through your agent that only allowed you to uh to share or to sell your movies on Betamax or something like that. You know, th- there is this precarity mm. of the platform potentially going away tomorrow or things changing and, and someone losing out, um, which can have a real detrimental effect on your income. So that's why these people are so antsy about every single step that they make because this is their livelihood. Um, and if it goes away tomorrow, then they're pretty screwed. I, I I guess what I find really interesting is is that people are taking to these platforms. It's a very it is hugely risky uh thing. It's a it's a big risk to make in terms of of if you'll actually break through or not. But it also quite often outside of I guess technical um niches or you know what I mean like very specific niches it demands a lot of vulnerability and it demands a a, a giving up of your entire personal life quite often especially if you like the family youtubers or anything that has to do with your personal life so i mean in your research how did you find people like how do you walk away from that i i, I can't imagine the kind of impact that has on the rest of your life if even if it's just let's say 5 years of your life but you've put every single thought that you had when you were 21 now lists you know lives on in eternity on this brand on youtube like how does that translate for them even if they do want to branch out and and get onto other platforms and evolve their brands well this is one of the interesting things is that you are essentially held hostage to the person that you decided to be when you first got your audience and if you heaven forbid evolve as a human being and and decide to have different interests then suddenly you run the risk of not being able to do that because your fans might rebel and say well actually we preferred you as the person that we first met which is completely you know it's completely opposite to human nature i think to to be like that because you don't expect that you're going to be kind of trapped in amber to be the person that you always were and always ever will be um 
And some people find that really difficult. You know, they particularly those people who build their brands around them as a person, um, they find it difficult to step away from that if the person changes. So I spoke to uh, Lacey Green um, in the book, who was hugely popular in the late 2000s and the early 2010s as a, a sex-positive YouTuber. Um, you know, she was teaching people uh, how to have good sex and uh, how to um, think carefully about your know, STIs and things like that. And then she got involved in a relationship with um, you know, someone who was in the alt-right. She kind of changed her opinions entirely and lost her audience and then removed herself from the alt-right, came back to you know, who she was originally, but her audience had abandoned her for the large part and she was nothing like the person that she had set out on this youtube journey to be and so what she ended up doing was posting stuff that she thought wasn't true to herself but she did it anyway because she had a book to sell mm. um, and you know, she was quite open about that to me because once my book had come out her book had been out anyway so she felt happy admitting that but it you know it kind of shows this element of artifice in amongst the authenticity that we we often say these digital creators have and and that was i think the case in the early stages but now you know often they can be playing a character as much as a hollywood actor is on screen um you know, they're not necessarily intrinsically connected with the people they pretend to be on platforms. So I think we can safely say in 2020 we have YouTube firmly the biggest player in the game. There are Hollywood celebrities on the platform, Instagram influencers, huge brands, news media outlets, all peddling their wares on the platform. So next up, I asked Chris about the similarities or parallels he's seeing with the trajectory of TikTok. So the trajectory is just YouTube, but on crack, essentially. Mm. It, it's 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 way quicker. Um, you know, TikTok has six hundred ninety odd million monthly active users in the, in the West, um, and that is you know double the number that Twitter has over you know nearly fifteen years, and it's done that in two years. Um, you, know, you look at monthly active users and YouTube has 2 billion, TikTok has 690 million, but YouTube's been around 15 years, TikTok's been around two. Um, and yeah, so with everything going faster, uh, we are seeing the kind of evolution of these platforms away from amateur hobbyists wanting to do something for a bit of fun towards the first instances of... Um, businesses trying to grab money from this new trending thing to the kind of settling down of established businesses you know in youtube we saw the early days of youtube there was a lot of wild west behavior uh, from things called multi-channel networks which we kind of raced through very quickly in the world of tiktok with you know it still happens obviously but you know over a course of maybe a couple of months you saw um, those TikTok first organizations that were often just designed to try and make a quick buck being replaced by the likes of you know, CAA and other talent agencies who represent Hollywood stars 
coming in and saying, right, well, Charlie D'Amelio, you are the biggest name on TikTok. We will represent you as if you are a Hollywood star or Addison Ray, you're a really big popular TikToker. Let's put you in the remake of uh she's all that oh, and yes, so yeah. yeah yeah everything is is going way faster and uh what's interesting from from speaking to people in tiktok and by dance both on the record and off the record is um and and people that i'm meant to talk to and people that i'm not meant to talk to is that they very consciously uh have been learning from youtube's mistakes um you know, they know that YouTube had an issue um, or has continually had issues with its relationships with the people who create content on the platform. And they've often been very disquiet about uh, how they're treated. So TikTok tries to improve the relationship with its creators. Likewise, um, they know all of the PR issues that YouTube has had around inappropriate content. And because it is such a fast platform that is rapidly growing, they can't keep on top of all of the issues. But they seem to have a little bit of a better handle on it than YouTube had even two years ago, which is more than a decade into its existence. And you know, do the creators they, do, do the same. Yeah. Do, do they have that same very like active... Um, uh, you know, like the sorry, no, I'm, I'm blanking now. But you know, the the YouTuber had had the creators program. They were so sort of actively trying to get people on the platform and give them support and stuff like that. Have they are, are they doing that same thing of sort of trying to develop relationships? TikTok or has thrown kinda... a lot of money at creators mm. to join the mm. platform, like loads. And it's it, if you are um, of a significant enough size, then they will give you a lot of sort of personal touch. So YouTube has the partner program mm. um, <clears throat> where you get to a certain level on the platform and you are essentially given a point person at YouTube to talk about any of your issues and you're given a little bit of um, you know a heads up of any things that are coming up around the corner on the platform that may materially affect how you create stuff. Uh, TikTok does an awful lot more of that. So, mm-hmm. A, they will throw a lot of money if you have an established following on a different platform to join TikTok. And then once you are there, some of them are treated almost as informal beta testers. TikTok is very, very keen to feel quite close to the creators that it feels are most important to it. Now, obviously, 690 million people you can't have that personal connection Mm -hmm. with all of them but when you get to a certain size tiktok is very conscious of trying to look after you and support you so that you stick on the platform and you help it grow okay interesting so i'm gonna ask you a very big question now but i'll just be we'll see how (laughs) how it goes but i i think for the the average person listening to this average person in the world is a consumer of these platforms and I want I think what people don't think about a lot is the cost of 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 watching a free video so from this moment in time right now which is obviously a you know pandemic world and and everything's very unsettled at the moment but what do you think your average viewer who sits down and presses play on a video on YouTube like what do you what what is that cost to them and what what do you think the average consumer needs to think about when they sit down and hit play on a video 
if they're just sitting there thinking, oh, this is cool. I just watched this for free and that's it. And I walk away. Yeah. I mean, they, they think that. And I think that they often believe that um, the content is much more professional than it is in many instances. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think that they appreciate the time that goes into it. Um, yes. If you speak to digital creators of any type, you rapidly learn that the amount of time they spend in front of camera is a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of time they spend on their brand, on their channel, on their business and all sorts. You know, they, they plan mm -hmm. videos pretty meticulously as if they were a professional production company and, and often sometimes they'll storyboard videos, you know, step by step. Um, and that's, you know, so the time cost is huge. Um, and, and the stress involved is huge and that's even before you get into the equipment you know mm -hmm. it, ring lights are relatively cheap but you know semi-decent cameras that are the norm for digital content creators nowadays don't come cheap i think i once did a kind of tot up of all of the equipment that was listed in in casey neistat's kind of entry-level mm. youtuber list he, you know he has this thing where he talks about the equipment that he's using for a video and i think it was something like you know a couple of thousand pounds mm. to get all of this stuff and that's just the equipment mm. but you see that's i kind of that's again i mean this is all social media i think sometimes that's also a bit confusing for people though because the I, he get he gets that stuff for free, right? Most of those people on that level will be getting that stuff for free, and I I mean I guess that's that's more of a criticism of marketing in general, not specifically the internet, but um, you know, so okay, so I guess there's two things there. So that that's someone consuming it. So understanding the value of of what is actually going into the work that you're watching for free, and maybe you need to consider that if you're getting it for free, I mean, as with all things on the internet, you're the product, and be if you want that person to sort of have a half decent life and not be pushed to making more and more extreme content that maybe you should support them via a Patreon or some sort of other platform. Um, I don't know if that necessarily, um, uh, in, you know, immunizes you against more extreme content, but, um, and then I guess, so on the, on the other side of it, for for I guess I'll tell you what I'm thinking about so I, I last week I interviewed Alexandra Dean who was the director of the Paris Hilton um, documentary which was a YouTube original that came out something like 14 million views at the minute the last time I checked um, which you don't get numbers like that in the traditional documentary world you know via TV or whatever and of course it's Paris Hilton and she's got a huge brand um, but what kind of fascinated me a little a little bit was like I obviously understand that these platforms are advertising and you you maybe do make money through them through these particular um uh, uh programs but you know you're sitting and watching paris hilton like put stuff on instagram for like an hour at two in the morning and i was like she's essentially making content for free for them do you know what i mean and i i, I think on a on on that level maybe with tiktok now i'm watching so many people come up and yes they make all this incredible stuff but short of short of monetizing it which again i feel like is a quite a small opportunity for them to actually monetize it they're making free content for billion dollar companies and i guess 
I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like your average person who's just gone with the flow of the last 14 years where you sort of continually put more and more and more and more of your life online. Like, do you think that's a good bargain or like working for free? <laughs> no, I think it's a terrible thing, but I think that's that's we've got used to that. I mean, you know, you only have to look at the number of people who will tweet at me when I post a paywalled link to a story that I've written who say, can you can you send me a non-paywalled version to indicate that we have a race to the bottom here? You know, the supply and demand balance has gone completely out the window. Um, and, and, you know, that is a big issue. I mean, God, I have people who I interview for paywalled publications who will then email me afterwards and be like, I can't access it. Mm. have you got a link and this is people who have like institutional links um who will have subscriptions but they just can't be bothered to find them (laughs) we have this idea of we don't like friction and we've got used to getting everything for free and if we can't get it officially for free then we will find unofficial ways of finding it so yeah and this is part of the challenge and this is why i think that you know there is a lot of hype every couple of years and it we've just had it um there was a story in the observer uh, about two weeks ago a story about um the possibility of like a digital creators union and, mm. and unionizing this sort of stuff and yeah it's exactly the same story that we had two years ago and exactly the same story that i wrote in 2015 when i was maybe a little bit more um a little bit more innocent and, and, and less jaded. Uh, but you know, the power balance here lies with these platforms and, and creators really are just very replaceable cogs. There's, there's no one, like literally nobody, who is bigger than the platform. You mm. know, PewDiePie can go away tomorrow and actually it won't matter to YouTube. Charlie D'Amelio could leave TikTok and it wouldn't be terminal for them. Um and and we see this time and time again. Um, and that's because it's become so normalized that we want to follow in these people's success that the precarity for creators is huge. If you if you decide that you want to stand up to the platform that you're posting on and say, you need to pay me more they will just say, well, we have literally 10,000 kids who are equally as talented, who have you know, pretty much the same equipment, who are willing to post as much as you. Mm. So why would you possibly do that? Um, like it's, mm. it's just completely screwed up. And I don't really know what the solution is because you, you can't fix it. We've, we've kind of glamorized this idea of creating content for free on the off chance that you maybe end up with uh you know a, a functional career out of it mm. but then of course that ex- that you know i mean it almost it's so obvious it almost doesn't need saying that you know exclusively makes it people who have enough money to have the time to do that you know basically anyone i mean i, I know there's tons of youtubers who have kids and i don't know how the hell they do it but you know what i mean anyone who even has to maybe look after another human being i don't know how you could keep up with that pace that's required of you um 
Okay, cool. Well, I, I want to um, speak a little bit to like you and your experience and you as a storyteller. So I would love to know, like, what was your journey on the internet? I think we're pretty much, I'm 30, so we're the same age, same, same. Are we elder millennials? Not quite. I'm not 100% sure. Millennials for sure, but on the mm. older, on the older side. Um, yeah. What, how did, how, what's your journey on the internet been like? Uh, I, so I got my, well, I had a, a sort of computer like an old apple mac probably when i was five or six that was the family one that i could play on mm. um but then we got an internet access probably about 10 or 11 i spent loads of times on you know discussion boards and, and irc and msn things like that um as a teenager and then um you know used to kind of dabble around in like learning how to do photoshop and rudimentary video editing but never thankfully never had the confidence or the kind of willingness to try and post stuff online because you know then you create a rod for your back i suppose uh, and then became a journalist after university um so 2011 2012 uh have been freelancing ever since and and, and now sort of have a weird niche in technology and social media in a, in a couple of books on it which is you know interesting but I, I do feel my age doing these things you know you're interviewing kind of like 18 year old or younger kids and you think there's not much longer that I can do this although Taylor Lorenz is is older than me and is far far better than me so I you know maybe there's hope still yet maybe <laughs> I've got five more years in me mm. That's so interesting. Um, because I think also then what, but what is really interesting, right, is like for even for you as 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 huge as these platforms are, and even with your knowledge in it, I, I appreciate the like confidence thing because I was very similar like that. I sort of went through all the phases when like blogs became a thing, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want everyone like, oh. and then like uh, YouTubers became a thing, and you know, you're like, okay, I, you know, and there's, I think there's obviously certain personalities that it suits to go for, but I mean, why, this is a silly question, obviously, but like, why didn't you become a YouTuber? Because it's interesting that, you know, with your knowledge of this world, that you, you are a writer and you write books, which is a very analog of you. So <laughs> like, why, why the one, why the traditional media? Because I'm not talented enough is 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 the blunt answer i'm not like this is the the one big misconception that um i really like to puncture is this idea that digital content creators are considered more like celebrities than they are entrepreneurs when in actual fact they are business people mm. yeah they are they are multi-talented business people. They're not only able to create engaging content and to have the kind of vim and personality to be able to do that on camera repeatedly, you know, hour after hour, day after day, and constantly come up with new ideas that their audience are interested in. But they're also able to build out a brand to deal with the business side of things, to know when to staff out you know they have often five or ten year business plans as to what they're gonna do mm. with uh, things they have merchandising they have you know um they sell the rights to their 
their brands that are able to do all of this stuff and and that's hard work and people often just discount it because they think that all that you do is you turn up in front of a webcam you stare at it and you just talk for 10 or 15 minutes and if you've got the gift of the gab then you're okay but you're not because that's what separates the people who try it and and ultimately fail from the ones that end up doing amazingly well throughout this whole thing it's it's that persistence and it's the talent which you know i'm too lazy to be honest (laughs) just come to me and so i mean how so did did it just did it did you focusing on this topic did it just come out of a natural interest in it and then you started pitching or you know like is it was it just general fascination that kind of led you into that specialization the joke i always tell is that it was a justification for me lying around in bed all day watching youtube um you know i needed to be able to earn money from it um which is actually you know it is partly true it you know it's something that yeah, I first encountered as a teenager and I would, you know, spend a lot of time with my friends at school watching YouTube videos. You know, we'd go around to each other's houses and kind of watch these weird things happening. And I kept doing that and realized that actually it had a broader societal and cultural significance that a lot of people either just discounted or they overlooked. And and, and so I realized that nobody was, well, not nobody, but there were very few people covering it. And there were very few people covering it in a way that I thought was important, which is going beyond, hey, look at this weird new thing. Mm. And actually delving into kind of the broader societal impact or the business side. Um, and, you know, there are, the one thing I think that maybe separates my coverage from others is that I do a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Um a lot of people look at the cultural impacts and kind of stop there. And some people look at purely the business side and stick solely on the business. Whereas I, I see them as interconnected. And I think it's, it's important that you consider both at the same time, because ultimately what people are doing while they're shaping culture is they are also trying to make money. And so the business deals are equally as important as, well, yeah. What impact does everybody doing the renegade have on, on the world? Yeah. Okay. Final question: Who is your favorite YouTuber and your favorite person on TikTok? Oof. It's a challenge. Um, my favorite YouTuber. Well, I have, I have, I. I can't just pick one. I don't think it's a challenge. I I'm I'm very very middle aged now, and I like cooking, so I'm I'm a big fan of Sorted. Uh, they're a food channel based in London, and they're really interesting. And they have their head screwed on in terms of the business side of stuff. Uh, so I really like them in terms of uh, the kind of content that they do. And then TikTok is interesting because TikTok you it's designed in such a way that you can have some personalities that you like but generally it's kind of more happenstance um you're you're less personally tied to following an individual because of the way that the algorithm works so you know I just find like the inventive nature of people on TikTok really really fascinating there's there's a guy who um does these very very over the top very campy 
dances to um pop songs and he's like he's just the stereotypical like geeky teenage boy who ends up doing all of these amazing videos that actually they they've started to kind of become the originator of a lot of um dance trends on tiktok sort of mm. unwittingly so i quite like him but there's it, you know, it, it's it's not as much about the personalities on tiktok for me it's more about mm-hmm. kind of the shared experience and the taking an element of culture and remixing it and, and mimicking it so that it's you know i don't ever look at my following feed on tiktok for instance like yeah the i subscribe to people in the sense that you would on youtube but i don't ever really look at that when is the book coming out on tiktok the book is coming out in a very precise first half of 2021. Uh, I have some chapters still <laughs> to write about it. Yeah, it must be really hard considering how um, how fast everything moves with it. How what, What's the delay like between when you close the book and when it comes out? It can be quite a while. My publisher is very good in that, even for the YouTube book. I mean, that came out in May 2019 and... I was still adding data points, I think, in March. Um, mm-hmm. Although the one issue with the YouTube book was that we didn't have paper proofs available. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it turns out that book reviewers really like paper proofs. So we're probably going to mm-hmm. have to close it a little bit earlier. But the first draft went in the end of August. And um, I think we're probably working towards before Christmas uh, okay. to try and finalize it. Okay, great. And is Twitter the best place for people to follow you? Yep, at Stokel, which is S-T-O-K-E-L. Great. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. No worries. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks again to Chris. There are so, so, so many things to dig into here. Um, it's kind of impossible to cover in one episode. So I'm hoping to get more guests like Chris on and to continue on with this conversation about how we tell stories online. Um, of course, I'm kind of very self-conscious that I myself am bootstrapping a podcast, this podcast, attempting to build my own audience and find my own tribe online. It's a kind of weird moral relativism where I think that like I'd be too embarrassed to share maybe my travels or even like my daily routine with the internet, I'd consider that a bit sort of selfish or self-indulgent if I were to do it. But I am somehow okay with putting out nearly hour-long conversations with people I find interesting and sort of wanting people to listen to it. So, you know, it's all a journey and I'm bumbling along with it just like many of us are. Uh, Speaking of bumbling, I apologize that the sort of regular Thursday releases were interrupted for a moment there. Uh, The joy and the pain of running a passion project is that you can walk away from it, an emergency which I had, um, with little to no backlash. But it does also mean that when there is an emergency, there's no one there to pick up the reins. But the reins are firmly picked up and I have some amazing guests lined up for November that I just can't wait for you to hear from. As always, you can find me over on all the social media platforms. I won't list them, it's easy enough to find me online. Um, please do email me at storytellerpod at gmail.com. I'm sort of getting my first few emails from people listening to the podcast. And I love them. I love replying. I love talking to people. So yeah, send me a message and I'm going to start shouting out people who get in touch with me at the beginning of the episode because I just, I do want to get to know you guys and I, I, God, it sounds so awful and cheesy, but 
I do want to have it be more than just me talking blankly into a microphone. Uh, as you will see, if you go over to my Instagram stories, quite often with a blanket over my head in a kitchen somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, so yeah, head on over to my Instagram, send me a message on there, send me an email. Um, I really want to get to know you guys. So until next time.